Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So I had the pleasure of interviewing Ian White, the co-founder and CTO of Sellthrough. They are the email service provider for retail and media businesses. They send tens of millions of emails per day. Um, Ian was the first technical hire at Business Insider. Um, so he is notably famous for creating the slideshow feature within Business Insider. So next time you're reading a, a tech article on Business Insider and there's a slideshow, that was Ian. Um, you know, we spoke about so much in this episode. It's really hard to like narrow down what the key takeaways are because there are just so many. Um, Ian was just so full of energy and you can just see his passion for tech. Um, and you can hear his passion for tech, rather you can't see it. I mean, I saw it. <laughs> Um, so we spoke about what it takes to be a good product manager and what you should look for in a good product manager, which is so important for startups on the tech side. Um, he, we spoke about how he grew Business Insider from just him and his co-founder to 200 people doing you know tens of millions of dollars in revenue. Um, and then a topic that I really wanted to get into was understand what truly should be included in the MVP, the minimal viable product. Sounds like a really basic question, but I feel like a lot of startups struggle to identify what a good MVP should be. Um, Should it be the bare minimum? Do you need to write code? Does it need to have this feature, that feature? And then Ian just really, really articulates what that process should look like and what it has looked like for him in the past. Um, so guys, this is a really, really great episode. So many golden nuggets in this one. Um, please, you know, just have your notepads and iPhone apps ready to take some notes because honestly, Ian drops a hell of a lot of knowledge in this show. Um, so that's enough from me. Enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Thanks for coming on the show, Ian. So Ian, just tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what you do. Or what you did, right? <laughs> <laughs> did, do. Um, yeah, so... I've been programming really my, my whole life. I started when I was 10, 11 years old. I wanted to make my own Nintendo games and, uh, you know, went to Brown, did the CS program there and um, also studied theater as well. I have a background in, in acting and theater as well. And uh, basically I've been working in the New York startup tech community for uh, the last 12 years or so. I uh, first. I, I actually, when I was back in New England, I'm from Boston originally, I built a uh, website called Barstool Sports, which is now uh, now a pretty big site. And I, I worked a lot in media over the course of like the, the 2000s. I did a, a company called Money Media, which was a uh, great financial publishing company, uh, sold to the Financial Times a few years back. Uh, worked at a, a music-oriented startup called Music Nation and uh, Business Insider, where I was the first uh, technical uh, lead at Business Insider and built out that, that uh, CMS platform from really nothing to uh, now it's one of the biggest websites in the world. Uh, and then while at these companies, I met uh, my co-founder, Neil Capel, who uh, was CTO at Money Media and we worked together at some other uh, companies and we started building Sailthrough. So Sailthrough is a personalized marketing technology platform that basically we started with 
the idea of personalized email. We were frustrated with the email vendors that were out there and their ability to personalize and serve up different individual content to each individual person. So we built out really, you know, first it was a, 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 a basically a prototype, started, uh, you know, getting to where we had real customers and real revenue. Okay, I'm just gonna- Go ahead, yeah. I'm just gonna bite in there, just yeah, of course. slow it down a little bit, because it's a long intro. <laughs> um, okay, just going back to the beginning. So was Barstool Sports your first product that you ever built? Well, I mean, I've been, like I said, I've been building products, you know, for a very long time. Right. But is that the first like notable? That's probably the first notable one, right. I would say. And then how did you get into that? Where did the idea come from? <laughs> well, Barstool Sports was a funny story because, you know, I'm, a, I'm from Boston. I'm a huge Boston sports fan. Uh, and I was, uh, I was living in Boston during the summer of, maybe this was like 04 or something. Right. And I saw at my gym this uh, local, you know, DIY type of paper that somebody you know, was, was leaving around and it was called Barstool Sports. Picked it up, thought it was really funny, <laughs> really enjoyed the writing, you know, it just had a really unique voice. And I, you know, I started, I started reading it and the guy had a website, but it was just a complete disaster. It yeah. was basically like some PDFs of the paper you could, you could yeah, download. No. Like that's, that's basically what it was. So I actually just wrote, wrote to him and I just said, look, I can build you a better CMS. Like let's <laughs> let's just do this. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I basically from you know '04 to '07, I, I I built out the the platform that became Barstool Sports, and it it really took off. Uh, you know, the company sold about a about a year ago, uh, wow. and and they moved all their operations to New York. They're they're just doing awesome. Uh, very very fun thing to be involved in. Were you a shareholder up until that point? I was not a shareholder. You know, I uh, I, I helped them out in the early days, and I, it's been a long time since I've been involved with the with the company. Right. But it was uh, it was a really cool thing to build. Super fun. And then you went on to your next project. Yeah. So uh, I got to New York. It was an interesting time in 2005 in New York. You know, the New York had experienced the first dot com. Yeah. Bubble. Yeah. Uh, maybe not as much as, as, as the West Coast, but it, it had definitely been a thing in New York and a lot of startups had, had come and gone. And I, I would say tech in New York was really at a low point in, in 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot going on, but I, I, I hooked up with this great company called Money Media, which uh, basically was building uh, content for the financial industry. Uh, and so we actually had like an email newsletter that went out to these, uh, to these financial subscribers and it would, you know, we would see our traffic that, that it would go out at like 7 a.m., you know, before the markets opened and right. we would see the traffic just like spike uh, as, as soon as that, that newsletter would go out. And so Neil Capel was the CTO at, uh, at Money Media and uh, he and I just, you know, hit it off like working together and uh, we went on to, to do a, a number of other projects and eventually found Salesforce. Right. And then in between that time mm -hmm. of Money Media, obviously we're at Business Insider, but how far did Money Media actually go? 
Uh, well, I mean, the company was uh, was was very successful. It ultimately sold yeah. to the Financial Times. I was actually only there for maybe about a year and a half. Yeah. Um, you know, I was basically just brought on as a as a developer, as an engineer, and built out some cool technology, and you know, then went on to other things. But uh, you know, it was it was a great company. So, how did Business Insider come around? So, Business Insider, uh, really, they they had started in I think. 07 as Silicon Alley Insider. Yeah. And it was basically the, the initial concept was cover Silicon Alley, yeah. cover New, New York, York yeah. cover the, the interesting things going on in the New York uh, tech scene. And so I was. For those, for those who don't know, Silicon Alley <laughs> is New York's tech scene, which is copying Silicon Valley, yeah. if you didn't get it. But yeah. Okay, carry on for those. Most of our audience are from UK. So. <laughs> I, I think listeners probably figured that yeah, out. I'm sure they figured it out, but you know, you got to be clear, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Silicon Alley Insider had, you know, been been started by, you know, just a, a small group of people. It was um, it was part of uh, Kevin Ryan, who who owns uh, Alicorp. It was it was one of his okay. portfolio of, of companies, and uh, Music Nation was also part of that that portfolio. So I was at Music Nation. I was the lead engineer there, and um, you know things things were kind of winding down there, and they had you know a need to yeah. have uh, Silicon Alley Insider have full time technical help. They sure. they basically they just didn't have anybody who was who was uh, running technology there. And so they, they asked if I wanted to uh, to switch over and, and, and work at, at Silicon Alley Insider. Joined, you know, and it was probably, I don't know, I want to say it was 10 people or something like that. And, uh, you know, stayed there for a, a couple of years and then stayed on as an advisor after that. Uh, you know, during that time, the, the mission kind of uh, expanded Sure. From silicon to business, <laughs> right? To really just covering business yeah. in general, and to to cover, I mean, Business Insider is now a very very broad publication. You know, I mean, there's there's a business orientation, but it covers pop culture. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's really a a great a great news organization. We did a lot of things there that I thought were were really exciting, and and uh, and still today are are you know ahead of a lot of the the publishers out there we really wanted to prioritize making things real time so the all the editors and writers had just really fast feedback cycle on right. the, on the content they were publishing and i also made it very easy for them to edit and, and make changes to what they were doing on the fly so How they did you do that what kind of things did you do um well we did a lot of a lot of interesting stuff in that cms like it was very it was very easy to you know, switch headlines at the drop of a hat, reposition headlines. Right. You could get a real-time view of exactly how many people were clicking on each link in the page wow. at any moment. Uh, so, you know, the, the editors, as soon as I gave them that functionality, they were, you know, they would they would throw a story out there, see how many clicks it was getting, change the headline. You know, they, they had wow. they had just tremendous uh, power and flexibility at their at their fingertips. Nice. Uh, so it was. Uh, it was uh, it was great. I I did uh, you know for for better or for worse. I was the creator of the infamous Business Insider slideshow tool. Oh, <laughs> you are <I'm> a <laughs> attack. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, you know 
it was I, I think it probably got a little overused yeah, as, a, as a tool. Um, you know, I think if you look at it today, you know, Business Insider doesn't or really anybody doesn't do as many slideshows as, as we did. But I really I just made it so damn easy yeah. to uh, <laughs> to upload, you know, a bunch of photos, drag and drop them into into place, add some captions. It was, uh, you know, it was just a really uh, rapid tool to be able to put up this content. And, you know, look, a lot of people hate on slideshows. Um, we always made sure there was that like view as one page option, which is personally the only way I'll look at the slideshow, but it is a form of storytelling, right? Yeah. And it's a, it's, if a slideshow is done well, it can tell a story in the sort of continual unveiling of, you know, the next step in the story in a unique way. And uh, sometimes it can be annoying. Yeah. Uh, but to be fair, I did actually read a Business Insider article a few days ago and it had the slideshow in it and I did find <laughs> it useful because it had loads of different bars and graphs and charts in there. It's and, like anything else. Yeah, it's, it just like a, it's just a, it's just a storytelling tool. So, yeah. you know, for better or for worse, I, I, I did I did put that in the in the system and there was just there were a lot of cool features uh, that I that had built in that. I thought it was a, a really uh, a really nice platform when I when I left. It must be a great feeling seeing, you know, some of the bells and whistles that you put into Business Insider still be around today, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's a great feeling, you know, when I uh, when I talk to some of the reporters over there, and you know, and they say this is so cool, you know, it's it's as a for me. When I think about how I think about technology and right. what, you know, why do I like technology? Well, you know, like a lot of technologists, I think I like technology for its own sake. Sure. But for me, technology is most interesting and satisfying when a person can get, uh, so when it helps, you know, bring something to the user to the person who's using the yeah. software's experience. Maybe it makes their, their day a little bit easier mm. or it brings you know, pleasure in some kind of way. Uh, I, that's, that's what I like is, is building software that, that people actually use. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's, that was definitely a, a great thing about uh, Business Insider was many, many, many people uh, got to use the, the software that I made. And they ultimately sold to AOL. So, uh, uh, no, it was in, it wasn't AOL, it was Axel Springer, Springer uh, the German uh, uh, publisher. And that was just a you know, fantastic story for, I think, the, the whole New York uh, ecosystem. It was, it was a great success story. And you had left before they had sold, is that correct? Yes, yes. So I left in uh, 2010, basically sail through, which had been, you know, my, my side project yeah. effectively. Uh, we raised some money. And it took a little while to raise. Uh, you know, we actually incorporated the business in like the fall of 2008, the same week that Lehman Brothers fell. Yeah, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah so great, great week to, to start a business. <laughs> and, you know, it was just, it was very, very difficult uh, funding environment uh, at that time. And uh, so, you know, we, we basically, you know, Bootstrapped. Neil went into credit card debt. You yeah. know, just you kept your day job. I, well. I kept my day job exactly, which is interesting. Yeah, like, you know, lots of entrepreneurs are told to go all in from day one, and I, um, I mean, it's there's no one right answer. Sure, there's just no one right answer. You know, 
I wasn't at that time in a financial position to quit my day job. Sure. And I also was, I mean, I, I loved working at Business Insider. Yeah. I loved the, the, you know, the, what I was building and the people, and uh, that was a great job for me too. So in that, in that sense, it made sense to, uh, to, 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 uh, right. do it in, in, in that way. Was but Neil still working his full-time job as well? Neil basically quit his full-time job to to pursue sale through full-time. Right. You know, I think he might have been doing a little consulting here and there, sure. but for the most part, he was all in on, on sale through. I mean, he, his, you know, hustle and, and, and grit really made a lot of things happen yeah. uh, in, in those early days. And did you have like a V1 by the time he was, you know, out pounding the pavement? Oh yeah, yeah. So it was funny because when Neil initially like pitched the idea to me, and the the initial seed of the idea was really to personalize these transactional emails, uh, when he pitched that idea to me, I was like, oh, yeah, I could probably build this in a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Typical developer tool. Yeah. Oh, easy, easy. Everything always seems easier than it actually oh, is. Oh yeah, I've learned the hard way. <laughs> it's it's sort of the way. But so when he when he initially pitched that idea. You know, I I did build the MVP. I don't think I did it in a weekend, but it it was definitely very quick that we were able to get to a place where we had real functionality, real customers, right. real revenues, and you know, I, I I think it's just it's so invaluable if you're building a product to have that real user feedback yeah. and that feedback loop of people, you know, just telling you, you know what they like and don't like, um, it, it just makes a huge difference during that development cycle. So we had that very early on. That's great. And, uh, you know, Neil, Neil definitely quit. Uh, I don't remember exactly what point, but we sure. certainly had a fully functional product at that time. So the MVP, let's say it took you I don't know, a month or so. Yeah, call it a month. And you're speaking to users, getting feedback in, you know, real time. How much of that feedback did you actually listen to? Because you know sometimes you can get feedback from a hundred people, and a hundred <laughs> people are saying different things. It's like how do you decide who to listen to? Well, that's the question, right? Because the customer tells you what they think, think they, they want, want, yeah, which is not always the same thing yeah. as what they need, actually want, or what they need. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, that's that's what product strategy is all about, right? Is is being able to to synthesize that that feedback. What you hope you can do is if you talk to enough people, you know, pattern recognition can can kick in and you can figure out, well, you know, these five requests that have come from these five different customers, mm. we can actually solve them all yeah. with feature X, which maybe none of them brought up feature X, yeah. but feature X will actually address all of their concerns. You know, you just have to empathize with the, mm. with the customer, I think. Empathy is the most important skill in, in, in product design. Uh, you know, really identifying with that user and figuring out what what it is that, that they need and what will what will make them happy. Um, and so there isn't. I couldn't say like one rule of thumb yeah. that we would we would definitely do this or not do this. Uh, you just have to synthesize the feedback and and and. Pursue your own vision to a certain point as well, sure. right? You can't just build all the features the customers want yeah. with no sense of where you're going. That will just lead to destruction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'll just lead to a mess of a product that doesn't yeah. really, uh, you know, that's just trying to 
serve too many purposes. I do think it is important to understand who you're building for yeah. and be focused on that on that market, on that audience. Uh, but you know, you just you just have to listen. Yeah, that's good. That's good advice. Um, so MVP's done. Yep, we're taking feedback. Yeah. Neil's got loads of credit card debt. <laughs> um, Lehman Brothers has just crashed. What's the time period before you actually raise your first seed round? So, so we raised our first seed round in 2010. Okay. So that was, I mean, if you think years. about the the first, you know, the first like brainstorm Neil had for this uh, was back in 07. That's a like pretty long, long time, time yeah. to to seed funding, and I I think today the seed market is. Uh, you know, has been more, uh, there's just so many more options today in right. terms of, uh, you know, angels and, and uh, accelerator programs. And there's just, there's a lot, there's a lot out there, but it was healthy for us in some ways. It, mm. it, it forced us to be really lean, really scrappy, yeah. get a lot accomplished with very little resources. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was, that was healthy for us in a lot of ways. That's great. And then, um, so you raise your seed round, and the next step was to build a team, or was it you and Neil for a, a month? Yeah, I mean, it was it was building a team. I mean, we basically at that time had, uh, you know, we had like one or two people that were helping on sort of the support and and, and sales end, but uh, you know, we we now had funding. We we raised one million dollars in the seed round, so yeah. that's, you know. That's not a lot of money. Sure. Uh, you hire a few employees that can that can go pretty quick. But we yeah. did, but we did have some real revenue. So we, we you know we tried to operate relatively close to to break even with a little bit of you know with some burn. Right. But um, so we hired. I think the initial hires were a couple of salespeople, a couple more people on the support side. You know we hired someone. Uh, you know, we hired people who were a little bit more experienced in in those areas, and uh, we hired our first engineers probably about six months into the, the funding, which is a long time. I think most people would have hired the engineers sooner. Good, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, I I was basically building it myself, and uh, I think especially when the, those first six months, I, I there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of like unraveling of, of technical debt that had accumulated over mm -hmm. the kind of side project, uh, you know, three years. So there was a lot of work for me to do before yeah. it was even in a, a, a state that, that developers could work on it. Sure. But, uh, you know, I was also, I'm, I'm very fast at, the, you know, how I, how I develop features in, mm -hmm. in the early stage. I like to just take a piece of feedback and incorporate it very, very quickly. And what we're we talking like 24 hours or? Oh yeah, oh, yeah wow. easily. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, we'd go on a customer meeting, I'd take a piece of feedback and code it that, that same day. I mean, you know, I don't think you always need to be that responsive, but... Uh, I think it's good. It's a, <laughs> I think it's a good trait to have. <laughs> it's a, it's, it is a good trait to have. Um, it, you know, I mean, there was that story in the press the other week about how Elon Musk, like, read a a tweet about like a, a suggestion uh, uh, for uh, for the Tesla and yeah, I think I saw they, that. they they turned it out and cranked it out in like a few days or something. Yeah. I mean, uh, 
that's obviously so much harder to do at, at scale. Mm. But you know, technology moves quick, yeah. and if you can stay, you know, lean and, and and agile and flexible, it's it's a very valuable thing. And I think some of the early customers that, you know, they knew they were they knew they were building on a on a product that was, you know, still still finding its feet. Finding its feet they were willing to put up with some feature gaps because we were so responsive and so innovative and, and, and so flexible. Now, that's not, you know, that trade-off starts to shift, right, as you start uh, selling to bigger companies and right. bigger organizations. You know, most of our customer base in those early days were small, innovative startups like, our, like ourselves. And, you know, a, a larger organization demands more stability. They don't, they don't actually want you yeah, you know, releasing every out. day. Yeah, but um, you know, it's just different trade-offs for different uh, stages of the business. And in that stage, it was all about being fast, fast, fast. So, in terms of like your customer persona in the early days, were you focused primarily on you know startups? Yeah, I, I definitely think we we had our early you know initial success with with startups because. First of all, we were a very technically sophisticated platform, which the good thing was you could do all kinds of amazing things that you couldn't pull off on any other platform. Right. Uh, the bad thing was it was a little more complicated to use. So you needed to be an engineer to use it. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and over time, we, we spent a lot of effort on making the feature set, you know, easier to use for a right. less technically sophisticated user sure. but in the in the early days it was a pretty tech oriented platform hmm. and uh so you know selling to other startups you know companies you know you start with anything right you, you try to build a a certain critical mass in it's better to build a, a critical mass in a smaller segment of mm-hmm. a market uh than spread yourself thin so yeah we achieved really, really strong market penetration among like New York startups, you know, yeah. especially in media and e-commerce. Like it's we- Really, really narrowing the focus. Yeah, like we, we were able to really, you know, crush it with, with that, that type of uh, market. And then, then you can expand, right? But if you, don't, if you don't nail your use case with an initial uh, niche, it's it's possible to never really find product market fit. That's what that book, uh, Crossing the Chasm. Crossing the Chasm. This is straight out of Crossing yeah, the Chasm. Yeah, no, no, I was going to say, yeah. these, are, these are not not my original ideas. No, 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 it's great. No, 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 it's a great book. Um, okay, that's great. And when we spoke before, you said your growth in terms of like marketing and customer acquisition was quite organic. Yeah, I mean, you know, we had we had a couple sales reps that were really, you know, you know young guys basically hustling on the phone yeah going to meetups you know uh but we i think a lot of our business was was referrals was was people just you know telling telling each other that our our service was good and uh you know we we didn't spend a, a whole lot on marketing dollars it was you know it was really just about uh getting getting the word out and uh you know we again in a you know this is this is back to the the niche right like if you focus in a a smaller community you're able to achieve a lot of success and momentum uh because word of mouth is so powerful sure 
It's great. So you're growing revenue. Mm-hmm. What's next? What happens next? So you know we raised that 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 one million and just I mean absolutely like the growth accelerated. We we really stepped on the gas, and uh, so we were actually relatively quickly uh, able to raise an A round from pretty much the same group of investors. So that was for about 8 million. And uh, you know, the, the kind of equation changes, right? When you, when you raise, you know, the multi-millions as opposed to, you know, something around one, uh, we were able to actually start spending a little bit more to, to uh, achieve, achieve faster growth. We were able to, you know, hire, hire more, more sales reps, hire more engineers, right. start building out a, a real team. You know, when you have, you know, when you, when a startup is say sub 10, 10 employees, it's, it's more like a, you know, a, a small family or a small cult or, yeah. or something. You know? <laughs> Two guys and we were just yeah. drinking beer, eating pizza. Yeah. <laughs> and that works really well in, in, the, in the early yeah. days. Um, you know, you grow and expand, you need, you need a little bit more structure. You need just to find a little bit of a repeatable model that you can scale out. Yeah. You might be looking at different geographies. You know, there's there's just a lot of different pieces. So we started to just hire hire more people in all roles. Uh, you know, add more experienced leaders at virtually every position. Yeah. You know, and uh, we just we just kept growing. So you know, when we raised the A round. That was, I would say, fall of 2011, maybe. And so we, I want to say the company was maybe like 20 odd people at that point. And so we went from like 20 to 80 in like wow. a year. That's incredible. Yeah. And you were the, so you were CTO and you were growing the engineering team. Yeah. So my focus was on engineering and product. Right. That was, that was always my focus. That was where I wanted to be. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was, I was really, I was really just building out those teams. We we hired, as I said, our first couple engineers uh, in the beginning of 2011, and so we had through 2011 small team, maybe about five six people, something like that. Yeah. And uh, you know that that can be a really effective group. You know, you you have team meetings and everybody's yeah. everybody can go around and talk about what they're what they're working on. It's yeah. you know it's like a good stand up meeting. Yeah. Um, meeting. Yeah, I mean it's a uh, was the, the pizza team concept, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, if you, can, if you can feed the team with with, with pizza. two pizzas, yeah. Um, well, it depends how hungry people it's are. Right. Yeah, I guess. exactly. I mean, but if I'm there, you might need three pizzas. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we might be a two team, a two, two pizza <laughs> team right two here. Pizza <laughs> uh, but yeah, so. You know, small, small, uh, very effective team hired a first product manager. Uh, you know, somewhere, somewhere in the middle of that year, uh, so we had like one, one product guy and uh, you know, a handful of engineers. So that's interesting, actually. So how long did you wait before you had the product manager? So how many people were in the engineering team before you guys said, okay, we actually need someone to kind of like help us? <laughs> Four or five. Okay, and uh, you know. I, I think the answer is different for everybody. Sure. I, I'm pretty product oriented in terms of how I approach things. Yeah. Neil is also a very product oriented CEO. Okay. So uh, in the early days, it really worked well to just have basically Neil and me 
you know, coming up with all the product ideas. Product ideas, and, speaking to the users. Yeah, all, doing all of that stuff. As you grow, that becomes more challenging. I mean, I think it especially became challenging for, for Neil. You know, he, he reached a point where he, you know, just, just couldn't spend as much time on the, on the product anymore. Um, and, you know, for me, same, same thing, right? If you're, if you, if you're running a team of engineers, you need to, you need to spend a, a lot of quality time yeah. helping all those engineers be productive and, you know, just helping them, uh, resolve blockers and, and communicate with each other and all of those, all of those things that good engineering management involves. Uh, so that mean, just inherently means you spend less time, uh, you know, sorting through yeah. feature requests from users. And so, you know, we, we brought on, uh, uh Dave, our first product manager and was a huge, huge, uh, help right off the bat, just, just immediately able to, to make a big impact in terms of taking on, uh, some of the load of the, of the product, uh, responsibilities. And so for a product manager, what do you think are good traits? So what does a good product manager need to have or should be doing for an organization? I mean, it's a lot of different things. Sure. Uh, I think it's it's bringing a uh, systematic process to how product is built yep. to the you know the whole flow from somebody having an idea, whether that's a customer or someone internal to the company. Mm-hmm. How does that idea make it through the the flow of design, development, testing, all the way to production. Now, obviously the engineering management's gonna be involved with some of those stages sure. too, but uh, you know, a good, a good product person should have, I think, strong opinions mm-hmm. about how that, that whole product development cycle is gonna work. So, so bringing process and structure to the approach, and then I think there's an innovation element to product. Yeah. Uh, and then there's, knowing the market and being able to uh, come up with a product strategy that examines the market is able to you know make bets on trends perhaps Mm -hmm. and come up with a a roadmap that can you know lead you forward Uh, those are those are the key pieces of of the responsibility and uh, you know how that's gonna shake out is going to depend on the on the individual product person yeah. their and their strengths and capabilities and also what the company needs yeah. uh so you know we were we were operating i think without a, a whole lot of discipline in terms of our our product uh you know development process a lot of it in the early days was you know Neil turning around yeah. and saying, hey, Ian, what if we did this, you yeah. know? Right, that's, that's, how, that's how product ideas can work in the early yeah. days. But as you get to a point where you've got literally hundreds of feature requests coming from customers, how do you synthesize them and make sense of mm-hmm. them and come up with a cohesive strategy that, uh, that you know, a, a t- approaches the markets you're trying to uh, hit in the right way? You know, that's, it's, a, it's a really critical responsibility. I guess the, the last thing I would say about product is I was never really a hands-off uh, CTO mm-hmm. uh, I, even uh, you know at, at every stage I was always uh, I was always coding we, we took there was a point where around maybe 2012 or so where I 
handed over the code base to the engineers. I said, this is not mine anymore. This is yours. Wow. Uh, it was a big, big moment. <laughs> Basically, gave your baby over to someone else. <laughs> that's <laughs> yours now. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what they said. They were like, you're handing over your baby. But, um, you know, I've always been, I've always been a fairly hands-on, even after that point, I still yeah. continued to, you know, sometimes it was prototyping a new system or, yeah. you know, building, building something uh, quick that, that I could, that I could stand up. So, uh, you know, I, I always like to be involved with that, but it becomes challenging as, uh, as you scale, it just becomes much more difficult. There's a lot more of your time you need, you need to spend in, in meetings, you know, you yeah. need to spend, uh, you know, coaching people or coming up with a strategy in a hiring. group or hiring, recruiting. Yeah. Yes. Like all this stuff takes a tremendous amount of time. Sure which if you want to be productive as an engineer you need long uninterrupted stretches of time to work yeah it it simply does not work to code in drips you know drabs. drips and drabs of you know one hour here two hours there you know there's that classic uh paul graham essay on the manager's schedule versus the maker's schedule yeah you know and they're two fundamentally different types of blocks for the whole day the other one's got <laughs> Tiny little blocks everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and you know, over the over the course of uh, scaling at at Sailthrough, and this is just a natural thing that, that yeah. happens, I think, for for CTOs. You know, my schedule transitioned from the maker's schedule to the manager's schedule, oh. and uh, that is what it is. Uh, it was it was something I you know enjoyed for a while, but it's been great for me to get back on the the maker's schedule. At least for at least for now, uh, it's just been uh, really enjoyable for me. Sure. So I, I just want to I want to switch gears for a moment now and and talk a bit more in a general sense about startups and you know mm -hmm. finding a good CTO. Mm -hmm. So, what should a startup founder look for, a non-technical founder look for in a good CTO? Well, it really depends on you know CTO is a responsibility that can be very different across the lifetime of the company sure. and the different stages of the mm -hmm. company. Uh, so it's important to recognize, you know, what type of CTO or what type of engineering leader you're, you're trying to recruit and hire. Yeah. Uh, you know, I do think in the earliest stage of a company, I mean, certainly if you're a non-technical founder and you know, you, you're coming to the table with an idea or maybe a business strategy and you mm -hmm. don't have a product, then what you literally need is someone to build you a product. Yeah. And it's not going to work uh, in most cases if, if it's a you know if it's a if it's any kind of technical product it's not going to work to outsource it to you know some some remote team. Yeah. Uh, you need to have some expertise in house. Mm -hmm. And so the ideal the ideal technical co-founder is going to be someone who is capable of building that initial product yeah. and is uh, capable of scaling with the business at least to to some degree. Now, maybe the technical co-founder is not going to be the right person to run a 300-person engineering team. Sure. But you do want to be somebody who, you know, can at least hire and manage a handful of engineers oh. and and be able to ramp up what what they're doing. Mm. Uh, it's it's not uncommon for a technical co-founder to not have a whole lot of interest in in management yeah. um but that you know that can present a challenge early on if, if you if you have somebody who really all they want to do is is code yeah uh 
and you need to hire more engineers now now you have a now you have sort of a leadership gap or a, yeah. or a problem you have to fill so the ideal uh, the ideal person I would say is someone who maybe has led a small team sure. um, in, the, in the past and is, is comfortable with doing that. Okay, great. And I guess in terms of like MVP, I mean, you said you were building the MVP on, on the side of your day job <laughs> and then you managed to, you know, bang it out within a month or so to, I guess, a working product that could do what you guys needed it to do. What is the typical time frame for an MVP and what should an MVP kind of have I, look, it depends on what the MVP is and what you're building. Mm. Uh, you know, I hate to hedge that answer, but an MVP, what it has to have is something that people value and want. Sure. That's yeah. that's all it boils down to. If it provides something that mm -hmm. people uh, are, are willing to pay for, at least in the form of their time, like, you know, if they're willing to use it and they, they want to use it, you've got an MVP. It's the minimum, it's viable product. Yeah. Uh, how long is it going to take to get there? Totally depends on what it is. Uh, but if you have a good product idea, you know, and you know, you've, you've got someone good building it, it should only be a few months. You know, I've, I've heard of some startups that, uh, you know, spent two years building their, yeah. their MVP. <laughs> yeah, I hate stuff like that. You yeah. know, like you have no idea if what you're building is valuable or not so two you know, years is it's, it's incredible what some people are doing yeah <laughs> so i mean you know like everybody's got their own challenges and problems sometimes maybe the technology is very very uh complex and hard to build but you know you just you you want to get it in the hands of users as, as soon as possible and if what you're building is you know too big and you know uh difficult to to get out the door it's it's worth you know Going looking at board. going back and saying hey how could i is there like a small piece of this that i could build that, that could be valuable yeah. in and of itself similar to like what i asked you before we started in terms of my own products you know should we be building on a platform or should we go you know try and build our own thing and i'm all, all about like leverage every advantage you have to you know get something quicker quicker because you don't know in the early stage like you you know we tried out in the early days so many ideas that like just didn't like flat out didn't work for selfie for selfie oh yeah absolutely i mean you know we would you know we would just come up with an idea and try it out and you know some of them were great ideas and, and worked awesome but you, you need to it's better to be in a position to stand up an idea quickly see if it flies or not mm. and just Kill it, kill it quick yeah. if it doesn't yeah. work. No, you yeah. know, don't get attached to, to any one idea to the point that, you know, if it's if it's not working, great, move on to the next idea. Yeah, you know, that's good advice. Um, okay, and secondly, or thirdly rather, at what point should your CTO go full time? I mean. Obviously, as soon as, <laughs> as soon as possible. Would you say that the CTO is more integral to the business than the CEO in the early days? Because they're building, right? I don't know if I would say more. They're both extremely, extremely important. I, I would go ahead and say the CEO and CTO are equally important in the early days sure. if they're both doing their jobs well. So, 
Uh, I would say so. Okay, cool. All right, switch gears again. So, favorite book? Favorite book? Uh, Infinite Jest. It's out there on the yes. on the shelf. And right now, sorry guys, I'm looking at his bookshelf, <laughs> which has probably more games than books. But you know, we'll take it. So quite a few comic books there. A few too comic well. books. Few every version of Halo. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so what was the name of the book? Infinite Jest. David Infinite Foster Wallace. Yeah. I read it about I don't know, 15 years ago. It's just a it's just an amazing novel. It's just I mean, it's like a thousand pages long. Uh, but uh, it's just uh, I got I got to reread it soon actually because wow. <laughs> some of the some of the characters and it's just, it's a very funny it's a very funny book uh, but it's also just about you know it, life the human condition and everything you could imagine set in like a, a uh, exclusive uh, tennis academy and uh, a, a rehab house in in Boston. Wow. Um, Oh, there we go. That's why you like it because it's yeah. based in your hometown. <laughs> <laughs> I do, do kind of like the hometown element. Too. Like I know that place. I know that place. <laughs> cool. Um, biggest inspiration? You know, like what got you into coding or whatever you're passionate about? I, I mean, I got into coding to make computer games. That was that was all I wanted to do when I was like 10, 11 years old. Sure. I think I was reading Nintendo Power. If anybody remembers uh, Nintendo Power, <laughs> it was a it was a magazine that Nintendo used to put out. Uh, so I was reading Nintendo Power, and they had like a design your own game contest, and wow. I I got so pumped about the idea of designing my own game. I mean, I just I always loved to you know des design stuff. Like I would come up with like. Like for our PE class, I would come up with like crazy versions of dodgeball we could play. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, you know, so I, I just love the idea of building games, and um, you know that was that was how I got I got into it was just building simple games. I used to like in the '90s, I kind of got involved in the internet yeah. from uh, like online uh, like MUDs they're called multi-user dimensions. Right. They're kind of the predecessor to like World of Warcraft and stuff like that. Okay. Only they were all text-based obviously. Oh, so I, I built I built and ran a, a couple of those during uh, during my high school years which were uh, just an absolute blast. It must have been fun. Yeah. Did you like make any money from that or was it just No, fun? no. I mean back then you know you did stuff on the internet Really for the love fun, of it, yeah. yeah you're like, sell swords. <laughs> I mean, if, if I if I had thought about it back then, I would have just bought up a bunch of domain names. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was it was just it was something something I did for for a lot of fun, and uh, you know, I uh, had a good friend who ran the who ran the uh, the games with me. He's uh, he's now one of the engineering leads over at, uh, at Netflix. Wow. Um, you know, just uh, it was just a really fun experience. You learn a lot about uh, you know building a uh, building a community of, of uh, interacting with people and mm -hmm. sort of uh, management issues, like working out sort of people problems from the the challenges of designing and administrating a uh, a multiplayer game that that a lot of people play. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it was fun stuff. Awesome, and. Where can people find you if they want to find you? Yeah, so I'm on uh, Twitter at Eon White, E-O-N White. And uh, my company website is stardog.io. And, uh, you know, I'm around New York. Uh, and, uh, you know, say hello if you're around. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was great. So, guys, you know how we do it. Our top three key takeaways from the episode. 
So number one, speak to users and get feedback. Now I know you guys probably hear this all the time, but it's just so important as Ian said. I mean, if you're lucky enough to have a CTO like Ian, speaking to users can really speed up the product development process. He was turning out new features literally overnight after he had spoken to users. So start speaking to users as quickly as possible instead of just guessing what to build next. Number two, understand who you're building for. They knew that startups were gonna be their best customers. So they built something for them and that community. That helped massively when it came to designing and building the product. So have a persona, literally have that person or company if it's a B2B product in mind at all times when you're building. It also helps when you're trying to market your product and get the word out there. Number three, speed is the name of the game. Build something quickly, test it. If it flies, run with it. If it doesn't, kill it, just like Ian said. Don't get attached to anything you build. This is a great one, I think, because too often I see startups or people spending one year, two year building one thing and it doesn't work out, which is such a waste of time. Had they just built something in a few months or a few weeks, it would have saved a lot of heartache and time. So guys, build it quickly and get it into users' hands as quickly as possible. And don't fall in love with the product, but fall in love with the idea and the problem you're solving. <laughs>